Welcome to Experience This, the podcast that celebrates remarkable customer experiences and inspires you to stand out from the competition by wowing your customers. Each episode, we bring you a healthy dose of inspiring stories, funny interactions, and practical takeaways. Marketing and customer experience thought leader, Dan Gingis. Shares the mic with customer retention and employee experience expert, Joey Coleman, helping you to get people talking about your business. So get ready, because it's time to experience this. Get ready for another episode of the Experience This Show. Join us as we discuss how to make up for missing pieces in your customer experience. Why it's crucial to think long-term in a short-term environment. And how you can take pointers on being remarkable from the DMV. Creativity, longevity, and specificity. Oh my! There are so many great customer experience articles to read, but who has the time? We summarize them and offer clear takeaways you can implement starting tomorrow. Enjoy this segment of CX Press, where we read the articles so you don't need to. You know, every once in a while, I wake up in the morning to six, seven, ten text messages and emails from friends who know me and know me well, sending me the same article. And this article actually came from you, Dan, and from a bunch of other people as well. Well, that's because a whole bunch of people sent it to me as well. They know (laughs) us, don't they, Joey? They know us. They know us well. And so without further ado, today's recommended by multiple listeners and friends of the experience this shows, CX Press, comes to us from Inc.com. The article was written by columnist Jason Atten and is titled, a customer discovered their $350 Lego set was missing pieces. The company's response was brilliant. Now, the subtitle of this article, which also happens to be our personal theme for this segment, is Find Every Opportunity to Delight Your Customers. The article details the experience of John, a big fan of both Lego and Star Wars. I resemble that remark, Dan. Yes, you do, Joey. And like you, John likes to combine his two loves by purchasing Star Wars-themed Lego sets. Now, he decided to drop $350 on the Mos Eisley Cantina set, a set that is in high demand, has a 400-page book of instructions, and includes more than 3,000 pieces. Now, the Mos Eisley Cantina is indeed a fantastic Lego set. And did I mention it comes with 21 minifigures? I am proud to say that I gifted that set to my wife for our anniversary last year. No kidding. Wow, what a romantic (laughs) gift there, Joey. (laughs) Well, what can I say, Dan? I hit the jackpot in marrying a woman who is equally a fan of Lego and Star Wars. But I digress. This story is about John. Now, John was super excited to build this set. So he dove into the 400 pages of instructions and started building the most famous bar in the universe, a place about which Obi-Wan Kenobi once said, You will never find the more wretched hive of scum and villainy. We must be cautious. 
And cautious John was as he worked his way through the build, making sure each piece was properly located and affixed to his growing model. And then when he was about two-thirds completed, he realized something. That Star Trek was the better space story? (laughs) No, this is not the segment you're looking for, Dan. I'm not even going to acknowledge that with a comment. He realized that he was missing an entire bag of pieces. Oh, that, now that hurts. Especially given that it's such a big set and, you know, he spent a little bit of money there, time. So how do you track down a specific bag of pieces in a 3,000 piece set? That is probably not something the retail store where John bought the set is going to be equipped to handle. You are correct, Dan. But the good news for John, he was missing pieces from a Lego toy. And Lego genuinely cares about customer experience. John went on the Lego website and explained his predicament, and Lego's reply was epic. I know, Dan, you always talk about what you think is the most impressive email ever in the world of customer experience, and you referenced the Chewy email that we've talked about on the show a couple of times. Uh Oh, you got a competitor? I got a competitor. And I think for me personally, this is my most favorite customer experience email ever. All right. First, I'm going to tell you the email, and then we'll dissect it a little bit. And I quote, Dear John, Thanks for getting in touch with us and providing that information. I am so sorry that you are missing bag 14 from your most Eisley Cantina. This must be the work of Lord Vader. Fear not, for I have hired Han to get that bag right out to you. Have a bricktastic day and may the force be with you. Uh, see there, not being a Star Wars fan, I thought he was going to say Lord Voldemort, but I guess that's a different guy, huh? <laughs> wrong, wrong guy. But hey, I, I love the reply. I love how he's clearly a, a fan of Star Wars as well. And, uh, and even though I am not, I, I think I can relate to it enough to understand how cool it is. Now, the article actually references people like me. And it says, if you're not a Star Wars fan, the email doesn't really seem like much, but that's the point. The person who wrote the email clearly understood that anyone who buys this set isn't just a loyal Lego fan. They're also a diehard Star Wars fan. Exactly. And so now, since you're not as much of a Star Wars fan, Dan, allow me to dissect some of the nuance that is underlying this email. So we start out with the, I am so sorry. Okay. First of all, from, a, from an element of customer care, apologizing at the beginning of the sentence, hugely important. And putting the so modifier in front of sorry, it it helps transmit the sincerity. I am so sorry that you are missing bag 14 from your Mos Eisley Cantina. Let's the customer know, John, in the first sentence that we hear you, we know specifically what you're missing. We have clearly identified what the problem is. And here's where they start to bring a little personality to the show. The next sentence says, this must be the work of Lord Vader. Now, anybody who's not a Star Wars fan probably knows the seminal Star Wars villain as Darth Vader, which of course is his name. But in the show, lots of times his minions and those who are kind of serving underneath him refer to him as Lord Vader. So it automatically takes it from kind of the general populace's knowledge of Star Wars to a more specific fan's knowledge of Star Wars. The email goes on to explain, fear not. For I have hired Han 
to get that bag right out to you. Now, here's where it gets really interesting. And this is probably way too much for the non-Star Wars fans. The Star Wars fans know where I'm going already with this. For those of you that aren't Star Wars fans, allow you know me to share a little more insight into the most Eisley Cantina. The most Eisley Cantina is a bar on the planet of Tantooine. And this is where we first meet the character Han Solo. And we meet the character Han Solo because Luke Skywalker and Obi-Wan Kenobi and R2-D2 and C-3PO have come to the cantina to hire Han Solo to help transport them off the planet. So the fact that they make a reference, I have hired Han, for the people that are really deeply into Star Wars, they will understand the double reference here. Not only, hey, we're getting Han Solo involved, so you can rest assured you're going to be taken care of, but saying hired Han as opposed to asked Han makes it hyper-specific to the specific Lego set that John purchased and is missing the pieces. Now, that's probably way too much exposition for anyone. But to me, it meets three elements of the perfect customer apology. Number one, you apologize. The, I'm so sorry. Number two, you explain what you're going to do to make it right. We're going to get the pieces right out to you. And number three, you show some personality. Well, I think it was all it was all that was missing was uh, what drinks were being ordered at the canteen, and can we have the recipes for the bartender in the house? <laughs> Fair enough. Fair but, enough. Uh, but no, I you know the and the part that makes it remarkable is the personality. I mean, apologizing and saying what you're going to do to make it right is sort of the minimal amount necessary for a good customer service email. It's the personality part that really sets it apart, and. You know, I think this was amazing, even though, you know, I maybe didn't understand the reference and you did. That's great. But clearly, John did. And that's what's important because it doesn't matter if Dan understands a reference. Dan's not the one, you know, complaining that he missed bag number 14. So it is very personal. It's fun. It's remarkable. And, uh, and you know, this article got, as we said, got shared so many times. And so when we talk about how, a remarkable customer experience can cause people to want to talk about it and to share it. This is a perfect example of that. And just judged by the number of times that just you and I got sent this email. Exactly. And you know, Dan, I think there's a key element here that you pointed out. The apology email is important and it is valuable. But a regular apology email probably wouldn't have turned into a story on Inc.com and wouldn't have been shared with us, you know, dozens of times. What makes this special is it's the combination of an apology with Lego, which has rabid fans, with Star Wars, which has rabid fans, and the combination of all of those three things aligning, plus the fact that clearly the email was written by someone who has a deep understanding of Star Wars, and they imbued that personality into the message, I think makes this a fantastic reply. So friends, when things do go wrong, and things will occasionally go wrong in your business, follow the lead of Lego. Number one, apologize. Number two, explain what you're going to do to make it right. And number three, don't be afraid to show some personality. That will keep your customers coming from galaxies far, far away to do business with you. We spend hours and hours nose deep in books. We believe that everything you read influences the experiences you create. So we're happy to answer our favorite question. What are you reading? 
You know, we've been talking about a lot of customer experience books in recent episodes. So maybe it's time to turn the page. Oh, he's here all week, friends. Nope, just for a couple more minutes. (laughs) And start talking about a book that you're reading that may not be just about customer experience. That's right. I get to ask the question that I love asking Mr. Coleman. What are you reading? Well, Dan, I always love when we get to do these segments on the show because I'm a big believer that you want to be well-read within your industry. And of course, everybody who's a listener is a fan of customer experience. And so I presume we're all reading the regular customer experience and customer service books. But every once in a while, I come across a book that is not specifically written for the customer experience space but is written by someone who's a master of their craft and has applicability not only to the customer experience space, but in this case, has applicability to customer experience professionals. So I just finished reading the brand new book by my friend, Dory Clark. Now, if you don't know Dory and her work, frankly, you should. She was ranked as one of the top 50 business thinkers in the world by Thinkers 50 and recognized as the number one communication coach in the world by Marshall Goldsmith Leading Global Coaches Awards. In addition to being a consultant and a keynote speaker, Dory teaches executive education at Duke University's Fuqua School of Business and Columbia's Business School. She's written a number of great books for any professional interested in making the most of their career, including Entrepreneurial You, Reinventing You, and Stand Out, which was named the number one leadership book of the year by Inc. Magazine. She's also the author of the brand new book that I just finished reading, The Long Game, How to Be a Long-Term Thinker in a Short-Term World. Ah, sounds interesting. Now, Dan, have you heard of Dory? Do you know Dory and her work? Actually, I have. Dory and I met, I think, once at Social Media Marketing World. I don't know if she would remember or not, but she was certainly memorable to me. And I actually made a big change in my business based on a post I read of hers on LinkedIn, where she suggested to people, entrepreneurs specifically and solopreneurs, that they take Fridays off. Now, I'm still building my business, so I wasn't quite ready to go that far. So I adapted her advice and I decided to block my calendar on Fridays so that people generally cannot schedule meetings with me. Now, of course, if a client needs to meet with me, I'll make exceptions. But what I found is that I have a lot of meetings Monday through Thursday. And then I get to Friday and there's all this open space where I can work on bigger projects or things I've got to think about, something that might take two, three hours. And it's been really, really good. So I haven't told Dory this yet, but Dory has really helped me in uh, in my business. Well, I love it. And to be honest, I knew about how you blocked that time on your calendar because when we try to schedule things, I don't qualify for getting onto your calendar on Fridays. You got to just know the secret password. Yeah, exactly. I, I do not know the password. But interestingly enough, the thing that you just shared lines up very beautifully with her new book, The Long Game. So I thought I'd ask Dory to explain in her own words what readers can expect from her book. Here she is. This is Dory Clark, and I wrote The Long Game because the truth is, for almost anything worth striving for or worth achieving, it takes longer than we want it to, sometimes a lot longer, which can become incredibly frustrating and demoralizing. And in the moment when we're facing setbacks, when we're 
looking around on social media or in the world around us and we're seeing everybody else who seemingly has it figured out or they're getting where we want to go faster than we are, it can become really difficult to tell, is it not working or is it not working yet? And in writing The Long Game, I wanted to create a framework so that smart, talented people don't give up too soon on their best ideas. I wanted to help people be able to think through the question of when to persist and keep going and when it might be time to move on. Because more often than not, because this is a short-term society, rather than persisting too long, many of us tend to change strategies too quickly or get discouraged. And I want to live in a world where the best ideas win, not just the loudest voices. And so in writing The Long Game, I wanted to be able to encourage people to push beyond some of the inevitable challenges that we face and be able to accomplish what they most want and share the gifts that they have with the world. Well, I've got to say, Dan, in some ways, this book was a case of the right message at the right time for me. But I can also see this being an incredibly valuable book anytime. You know, so often we're driven by the newest campaign, the next initiative, the most recent voice of the customer survey, this quarter's rocks, whatever you do to think about the urgent in your life and the projects you're working on short term, when instead we need to be thinking much, much longer. Yeah, it's kind of that, it reminds me of that old thing about how when we put to-do lists together, you know, our brains always move to the easiest stuff first because we feel so good. There's that dopamine rush of crossing something out. And the problem is that sometimes we can spend our whole lives just doing the little things and checking emails and responding to emails and, you know, doing the little things and feeling like we accomplished a lot. And, you know, as I mentioned before, this taking Friday and blocking the calendar is exactly to combat that because I know that there are times where I've got to work on longer things and things that are going to take a while or that are bigger picture. And obviously, I think in business, we've got to do that as well, or we miss the chance to really innovate. I couldn't agree more. And I think not only do we need to take the time to think and to focus on those bigger ideas, but we have to give those types of activities and initiatives the chance to be successful. Instead of looking for immediate returns, we've got to give them the duration to run to actually build some momentum. You know, I actually had a ton of highlights from this book, but there was one passage that was fairly early on in the book that not only set the tone for the rest of the book, but it's something that I've come back to again and again since I finished reading the book. And I quote, if it were easy to be patient and easy to do the work, then everyone would do it. What I've come to love about patience is that ultimately, it's the truest test of merit. Are you willing to do the work despite no guaranteed outcome? We earn our success by toiling without recognition, accolades, or even any certainty that it's going to come to fruition. We have to take it on faith and do it anyway. That's strategic patience. You have to surround yourself with people you admire and trust and learn from their example. You have to study what's worked before and what you wish to emulate and then determine where you want to do something different. And you have to be willing, and so many aren't, to make choices. To recognize that saying yes to one thing inevitably means saying no to something else. You have to weigh those consequences and put your chips on the table. Trying to do it all means nothing of substance 
will ever get done. Are you done reading yet? <laughs> ah, that was me being that was impatient. Nice. That was nice. Ah, I got, got it. it. I got it. I got uh, it. Yeah. Well, as a guy that is rarely patient, I, I can relate to that in the sense that I could probably learn something from this book and, uh, and, and learn how to focus more on being patient about certain things. And again, that goes for... It sounds like that it goes not just for business, but also for life. It does. It does. And I think at the end of the day, that's why I loved this book. I love the idea of being able to combine what we're doing in our business world with what we're doing in our personal world and kind of have, for lack of a better way of putting it, a little philosophical book or a little philosophical break that says, yeah, just be patient. It'll all sort itself out. Well, since I already shared my favorite passage, I'd love to give Dory the chance to share hers. Here it is. This is Dory Clark, and this is one of my favorite excerpts from The Long Game, because ultimately, if we want to become long-term thinkers, we have to get control over our schedules in order to do it. Here we go. Senior corporate leaders are almost unanimous that long-term strategic thinking is crucial. When was the last time 97% of anyone agreed on anything? But if we do agree with that premise, where do we begin? The reclamation may start with Derek Sivers. Sivers began his career as a musician and morphed into an entrepreneur when he created an online independent music company called CD Baby, which he successfully sold in 2008. But unlike many entrepreneurs who plow headfirst into another startup or angel investing, Sivers took a different path, moving abroad, Singapore, New Zealand, Oxford, England, and devoting most of his time to writing. To him, being busy isn't a mark of status. It's a mark of servitude. I have a very negative impression of the stereotypical frazzled, freaked out, oh my God, I'm so busy type, he told me. They seem out of control, not in control of their life. But I've met a few super successful people that are calm, collected, unbothered, and give you their full attention. They seem to have everything under control. So I'd rather be like that. The key is this. If we venerate busyness, even subconsciously, we'll make decisions that lead us in that direction. Instead, we need to get clear on what we want. And if it's true mastery over our schedule and the ability to plan and think that comes along with that, we need to step up and be brave enough to choose accordingly. So if you're looking for some valuable perspective for both your personal and professional life, pick up a copy of Dory Clark's book, The Long Game, How to Be a Long-Term Thinker in a Short-Term World, and start thinking about the results your actions will achieve over time if you think broader about your schedule and give your initiatives the time they need to build momentum and succeed. And as is the case with every book we talk about here on Experience This, if you'd like the chance to receive one of 10 copies of Dory's book or any other book we discuss on the show, just let us know what you thought of this episode via an email, a review, or a share on social media where you tag one or both of us. Hint, tag Dan, and you might get a response. And we'll be happy to send you a copy immediately. We love telling stories and sharing key insights you can implement or avoid based on our experiences. Can you believe that this just happened? I had the pleasure of going to the DMV recently. And when... <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. Wait a second. I must have heard you wrong. Did you say that 
You went to the DMV and it was enjoyable? You know, I actually did, Dan. And to be honest, I was as shocked as you are. Having moved to Iowa, I wanted to get an Iowa driver's license. And to be honest, I put it off for a bit to kind of let the COVID situation calm down. And it took a while because you had to schedule an appointment. But long story short, I finally found myself at the DMV getting my new license. Now, to be honest, the experience was from the outset, both typical and familiar. Since I already had a license and I've gotten licenses in various states over the years, I didn't need to retest. I just needed to show proof of my identity and my new address and then get set up for a new card. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if I trust those driver's tests in Colorado, Joey. Yeah, Maybe you know. they should have retested it, They probably should have. They probably anyway, should Anyway, it, it sounds like it was pretty straightforward. Although at the DMV, that's actually an accomplishment. Yeah, no, very true. And, uh, you know, overall, it was a very positive experience. But as we were nearing the end of the process, they asked me a series of questions that went from familiar to ones I don't ever remember being asked when I've applied for a driver's license in the past. Now, they, of course, asked if I wanted to be an organ or a tissue donor. A very important question. Very important question indeed. And absolutely, I said yes. And then they asked if I wanted to signify medical alert with any specific conditions on the driver's license. Hmm, now that's interesting. I've heard of people wearing bracelets or having cards in their wallet, but uh, on the driver's license makes a ton of sense. If you're in an accident and you had a medical condition, I could see where you'd want that there. Absolutely. But then they took things a step further by asking if I wanted to identify a medical advance directive or living will. Aha. Well, that's cool. I mean, I, having worked in healthcare, I know that people don't realize how often an advanced directive can come into play for either identifying who can make healthcare decisions on a patient's behalf if, if they can't, or even outlining somebody's end-of-life treatment requests. Indeed. And again, while these may not be the most fun things to think about, it's even less fun for your family or your loved ones to try to figure this out when you're incapacitated. But then the representative at the DMV asked two questions that really caught my attention. Because not only had I never been asked these questions at the DMV, but I don't think I'd even thought about the value of asking these questions at the DMV. Now, the first question asked if I wanted a designation that I was deaf or hard of hearing. Wow, I could see multiple ways that such a designation would be useful from cluing in a law enforcement professional at a traffic stop or giving a bartender a heads up to speak louder or any such of a designation could have a lot of different applications, I would think. You know, I definitely think it could. And what I loved about this is it's just a step in the right direction towards giving someone who's looking at your driver's license better insight as to how to interact with you. But it was the last one that I really appreciated. They inquired if I wanted to designate that I had autism spectrum disorder. Now, I don't, Dan, but I know a number of people that do. And that spectrum can be so large and often can cause such challenges for people on the spectrum as they navigate their day-to-day -day life that this felt like a really interesting and useful designation to have delineated on a driver's license. You know, when I was a criminal defense attorney or on more than one occasion, I found myself in an experience where someone got into trouble with law enforcement, not because they did anything wrong, but because they had autism. And their reaction to the stress of being interrogated or frankly even spoken to by a peace officer triggered a reaction that let the, left the officer 
escalating things in a way that I don't think would happen nearly as much if the officer understood that the person was on the autism spectrum and they saw that when they asked for their license and they could look right at the license and get that additional insight. So on one hand, I find this fascinating because, and I'd be absolutely thrilled to learn the percentage of people that answer yes, and specifically the percentage of people who have autism who answer yes, because I, I'm interested to know whether people would even want that on their, on their license. But I also wonder on the flip side, if it opens up somewhat of a can of worms for every other issue that somebody might have that they also, in theory, might use not as an excuse, but as a reason for certain behavior or what have you if being stopped by a police officer. In other words, I could see this going to the place where that survey gets really long because they could be asking you about a whole range of different things. Absolutely. And I, and I definitely could see that happening, Dan. However, I do think, you know, obviously, since it's a question that's coming from, you know, the government, from the organization that is issuing your driver's license, I'm sure there was some type of legislation or executive order that produced the ability for them to put that on the license. What I think is valuable is that in an era where we are trying more and more to treat our fellow human beings as humans and to meet them where they're at, I thought this was a really creative way to incorporate that. So what can we learn from the DMV? Well, am I suggesting that you ask all of your customers a series of hyper-personalized questions and then issue them ID cards with custom designations? No, not at all. What I am suggesting, however, is that there are opportunities within your CRM, your customer relationship management software or tool that you use, to make notes about your customers about things that might make serving them easier and might make their experience better. You know, if they're hard of hearing and you've noted that in your CRM, maybe your call center rep will slow down a little bit and speak more clearly. Or if they're on the autism spectrum, Maybe your receptionist can be prepared to help navigate some interactions that might otherwise add stress to the customer touchpoint. In short, the more you meet your customers where they're at, the better you will be able to serve them and deliver the personalized and customized interactions that we all know are designed to create remarkable customer experiences. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Experience This. You're the best listener ever. And since you listened to the whole show... Yay, you! We're curious. Was there a specific part of this episode that you enjoyed the most? If so, it would mean the world to us if you could share it with a coworker, a friend, or someone that just loves listening to podcasts. And while you're in the sharing mood, if you felt inclined to jump over to iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts and write us a review, we would so appreciate it. And when you do, don't forget to let us know as we might have a little surprise for you. Thanks again for your time and we'll see you next week for more Experience. Yes.